You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. Welcome. I'm Amanda Olke, Director of Adult Education at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Thank you for joining us today for the U2 Spy Plane Shootdown with Francis Gary Powers, Jr. Vince Houghton, our historian and curator, will be leading this discussion that marks 60 years since the plane was shot down on May 1st, 1960. So without further ado, I'm going to turn this over to Vince, who's going to do a fantastic job setting Gary up. So as Amanda mentioned, um, 13 days ago was the, marked the 60th anniversary of one of the most consequential moments uh, of all the Cold War, and that was the shooting down of a U-2 spy plane piloted by Francis Gary Powers. Powers fortunately was able to escape the plane uh, and parachute to the ground where he was captured uh, and imprisoned inside the Soviet Union. A couple years later, he was traded in a very famous spy trade for Soviet illegal Willie Fisher, also known as Rudolf Abel. Uh, and uh, then Powers came back to the United States and started a second life and a second career part of which was uh, involved in uh, bringing to the world his son, Francis Gary Powers Jr., who's joining us here today. Uh, Gary has spent much of his adult life trying to educate the public on the real story behind the U-2 incident. Lots of myths that have to be dispelled, um, doing so to ensure his father's legacy among the greatest of American heroes. And to do so, he has authored two books, um, that cover this most recently spy pilot controversial cold war uh francis gary powers u2 incident and the controversial cold war legacy and, and this is really the one book that i've seen that goes as deep as you would ever want it to it uses everything from old audio tapes letters his father's wrote and received while in prison the soviet union transcripts of his father's uh debriefing by the cia 
recently classified documents, with the YouTube program, and even interviews with Gary Powers' contemporaries uh, to tell the real story of his father's flight. So we're really happy to have back with us a true friend of the museum, uh, Francis Gary Powers Jr. Gary, thank you so much for spending time today to talking to us. All right, Vince, a pleasure to be here. Uh, welcome all the uh, spy fanatics out there. I see about 200 people signed up for this podcast, and I look forward to talking with you and giving a little behind the scenes uh, truth of what took place. So let me start with this, Gary. You had a, a very significant father, right? A lot of us learned about your dad in school. Um, a lot of us studied him even more after the fact. Um, but you weren't alive when your father was shot down over the Soviet Union. You were born after the fact. So I want to know at what point in your life did you realize that your dad wasn't just some dude, right? That he was somebody who would be a household name for decades to come, right? I mean, most of us grow up and our dad is our dad. But at some point you found out, oh, my, my dad is someone a little different. I mean, he's someone historically irrelevant. At what point did you realize this? Well, for the most of my uh, early life, while my father was living and I was growing up, uh, between the age of zero and 12 years old, dad was dad hiking, biking, fishing, uh, discipline if I was, you know, doing something I shouldn't be doing. Uh, no physical discipline, but right from wrong, explain to me what I did, try to make improvements, a typical father-son type of relationship, a typical family environment. So when I was growing up, it was all normal. I thought everybody's dad was shot down, imprisoned, exchanged. I just didn't understand the significance role that dad had in US history, world history, until his death. And that occurred on August 1st of 1977. And that's when the light bulb went on. Oh, not everybody gets shot down, imprisoned, exchanged, or buried at Arlington National Cemetery. And that's when I became aware that my father went through something in our history uh, a little bit different than most dads. I think what's really interesting about your father is that even if he hadn't been shot down, even if he hadn't become this household name because of this one mission, he should have still been known as, uh, going down in history as an extremely accomplished pilot, right? This is someone who during the Korean War was, was a, a fighter pilot, and he was one of those veteran U-2 pilots. I mean, he conducted a total, I mean, almost 30 flights, if I remember right, over the Soviet Union communist bloc states. You know, so this is somebody who was accomplished regardless of this fateful mission in May 1st, 1960. Yeah, dad was one of the top gun pilots at the time in the 50s before there was a top gun program. Um, he was one of the best of the best, which is why he was recruited by the CIA to fly the U-2 missions. But these missions were not just flown by dad. There were some 23, 24 other pilots, original CIA pilots in the 1950s doing the, these missions. And all of them were very capable in their job as a pilot. They were fighter pilots. They were trained uh, to follow orders. They were trained to carry out missions. Uh, and uh, they were doing everything they could to prevent America uh, from entering into a war with the Soviet Union. They were trying to protect uh, our citizens at home uh, through the U.S. Air Force and their operations. You actually got a chance, and this is something that I think a lot of people would love to have the opportunity to do. You had a chance to actually fly some with your father before he died. Um, are you now, did you go through and become a pilot yourself? Or at least doing these flights, did you understand a little bit better with what your dad had as a career, you know, not only flying fighters, but also the U-2? 
Well, that's right, Vince. When I was growing up, uh, Dad was a civilian pilot by that time, already out of the Air Force, already out of the CIA, had returned home from the Soviet Union. So I was growing up in a, in a typical house in San Fernando Valley of uh, LA, California. Dad happened to have a pilot job at the time, uh, Lockheed Aircraft Corporation. He flew with them as a test pilot for Lockheed between 1963 and 1970. In 1972, he gets a job with KGIL radio station in the San Fernando Valley reporting on news, weather, and traffic. Then in 1976, he gets a job with NBC television flying their helicopter reporting on news, weather, and traffic, but this time for the evening news. So this is when I'm growing up, I'm flying with my father. He would take me up in the morning before school to do the air traffic uh, rush hour commute reports for KGIL. We'd land at Van Nuys Airport, and then he'd shuttle me over to school before my classes would start. Or he would come in, pick me up from school in the afternoon, we'd go over to the airport, and then we'd do the afternoon uh, rush hour traffic report. So I remember and have very vivid memories of flying with my dad with KGIL um, when he was doing the reporting, also flying in helicopters with my father when he was training to fly helicopters before working for NBC. So I was very uh, fortunate to be able to have that experience with him. I'm not sure the analogy, I'm trying to think of the analogy of, you know, you went and learned to fly with one of those famous pilots and right, you know, it's almost like if the, the, the or one of the right kids, you know, learn how to fly with his dad. I mean, but this is a situation where it just doesn't happen. You know, but for you, it was kind of normal. It was just every day because it was you flying with dad, not you flying again with one of the most consequential pilots in world history. Now, one of the things that dad would do when he was with KGIL radio station, he was allowed to take guests up with him in these airplanes or in this airplane for the reporting. So occasionally I'd have a friend or two go with me. Uh, one of those friends, turns out, ended up becoming a pilot because of the experiences he had with my father and that thrill of being in the air and flying, it transitioned into another generation. So my father is actually responsible for at least one pilot becoming a pilot. <laughs> um, also, I wanted to mention in regards to um, uh, the flying aspect of it, this is something that dad always wanted to do. From a very young age, he wanted to be a pilot. He got his first flight in a uh, Piper Cub sometime when he was about 10 years old. So this is about 1939, 1940. Um, $2 to do a 10-minute uh, plane ride with a woman pilot at a country fair. So he begged his father uh, to scrape up the $2, which was a lot of money back in 1939, uh, end of the Depression, starting to go into World War II. But he got that, uh, convinced his father to loan him or borrow or give $2. He got the flight and he told his sister, I left my heart up there. So this is something he wanted to do from a very young age. And he pursued his dream of flying by going into the military, the U.S. Air Force, upon graduation from college. So I think people may not understand or may not know the tragic end to his death. But he, he was a hero even on the moment he died. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he did die in a helicopter crash, but he could have landed safely, but made a very, you know, in his case, a fatal decision not to, uh, and actually saved a lot of lives in the process. Well, that's correct. Um, you're talking in regards to when the helicopter crashed on August yeah. 1st, 1977. Uh, helicopters, when they run out of gas, can do something called auto-rotating. 
and it's a way to use the blades of the helicopter to cushion or slow the descent of the aircraft when it doesn't have any power. But once a pilot picks a landing spot, he cannot diverge because it's basically gliding in on the blades that are auto-rotating. They have started to do this maneuver to auto-rotate. It would be a hard landing, um, but uh, uh, upon picking the spot, he noticed that there were kids playing baseball. He did not want to land on top of the kids, so he was able to divert the helicopter before reaching that landing zone. But as a result of the diversion, he fell out of the sky, the helicopter wasn't able to auto-rotate, he and the cameraman were killed in the accident. And this is something where it wasn't like any kind of maintenance issue that he messed up. It was the, the fuel gauge was screwed up. He didn't know that he was running out of gas. When he realized he was, he did everything he could to try to land safely. But in the end, he saved some kids and exactly. sacrificed himself to do so. And in regards to the um, uh, fuel gauge and the reason the helicopter ran out of gas, um, Dad had complained about two weeks prior that the fuel gauge was misreading, that he was aware that he had 20 more minutes of flying time than was registering on the fuel gauge. We know that the helicopter was in for an overhaul, a mechanical overhaul, the week before August 1st. And what I believe happened is the mechanics fixed the fuel gauge to be accurate and didn't tell Dad, or Dad didn't read it in the logbook. So he's flying on August 1st with the assumption he has 20 more minutes of flying time than is registered. 10 minutes from the airport, out of gas, he goes down. But this does fall under the realm of pilot error because dad was responsible for his fuel management. And this is what the FAA determined after the investigation. Pilot error, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, you kind of shrug your shoulders and say, well, whatever the official count is, I don't care because this is a situation where he could have easily landed and made a decision not to. I mean, auto rotation is something that every helicopter pilot is taught, you know, when you're taking the classes, it just, you know, the kinetic energy built up in the, in the rotors will allow you to land regardless of fuel or not, but you're right. You get one shot and that one shot he decided, and he knew this is not something he, he thought he could land afterwards, right? The minute he pulls out, of his attempted auto rotation, he knows he's toast, or he knows at least it's he's not going to land very softly at that point, right? This is a conscious decision on his part. Yes, it was, but I believe it was the right thing to do. I mean, he didn't want to land on top of these kids. He probably thought, "Hey, that could be my son down there." Yeah. So let's let's shift focus and let's talk about the U two incident itself, because I think there may be people out there, and I'm going to put up the now absolutely the most famous picture of your father standing in front of the U-2, some people might not understand the importance of these flights in a big picture to American national security in the 1950s and 1960s. So you've been a, you know, a historian of this since you were old enough to understand what was going on. So can you talk the audience through a little bit briefly about why these U-2 flights were so important to maintaining our national security at this time? Well, back in the 1950s, uh, it's the height of the Cold War. Um, Stalin has uh, passed away in 53-54, followed on by Khrushchev, um, the Soviet Union, while allies during World War II are now basically adversaries. And the tensions have been continuing to build since the end of World War II. First, with the Berlin airlift, the tensions between the Soviets and the Americans increased. 
Then in 49, the Soviets explode their first atomic bomb. They have the A-bomb, we have the A-bomb. Tensions are starting to build, are continuing to build. In 1950, um, I've forgotten what year now. 1950, the Korean War breaks out. Uh, the Soviets back on the dot. Uh, North Korea, uh, we back South Korea. Tensions continue to build. 1952, General Eisenhower gets elected to be president of the United States. Here in America, we're thinking, that's great. General Eisenhower is now President Eisenhower. I like Ike was his slogan. Everybody liked Ike. He won by a landslide in the 1952 presidential election. For us, we've elected a war hero. For the Soviets, they had a little bit different interpretation. We have just elected a military warmonger to lead the US into war. So the tensions are continuing to build. And it's very hard to get information out of the Soviet Union in the 1950s. Their maps were inaccurate, sometimes intentionally, to hide their strategic defenses and their um, um, strengths and weaknesses. Uh, it was a close, some cities were closed where you could not just tour and as a tourist go and visit these other cities. So very difficult to get information out of the Soviet Union during the 50s, the height of the Cold War. So uh, General uh, President Eisenhower, Alan Dulles, head of the CIA, Richard Bissell, Dick Bissell out of the CIA, they come up with this program in conjunction with Lockheed Aircraft Corporation, um, Kodak, who provided the cameras, GE and or Pratt Whitney with engines and or components to create this U-2 spy plane, which is what you see on the image uh, in front of you. Uh, the U-2 was approximately uh, 40 foot long, 80 foot wingspan. It was designed by Kelly Johnson, a famous uh, aeronautical engineer who designed um, uh, Amelia Earhart's airplanes, uh, the Shooting Star, the U-2, the SR-71, and a whole slew of other aircraft. So Kelly Johnson, defense contractor working with Lockheed, comes up with uh, the U-2 program or the U-2 airplane to fly at altitudes above 70,000 feet on missions to photograph foreign hostile country territory. So my father, along with another 20-some pilots, were recruited out of the Air Force in the 1955 to 1956 timeframe. They were recruited to fly the U-2 spy plane over foreign hostile countries, taking uh, photographs to determine the strengths and weaknesses of their adversaries. And the U-2 was an extraordinary aircraft. I, the, the story I love is on its first test taxi, right? It was just basically rolling from one part, or supposed to, roll from one part of the uh, of the landing strip to the next and accidentally took off. I mean, they, they had no, it was such a, talk about an airframe that was absolutely state of the art. And what's so amazing about it today is that there's just an article about a week ago that they're gonna put millions of dollars into keeping it going even further, right? It still actually flies today. And you know, this is something that was now built 70 plus years ago. Yeah, it is a wonderful airframe. I think the B-52 is the only plane flying longer than the U-2. Um, the uh, original U-2s have now all been crashed or in museums, but the ones that are flying today are the ones that were built in the late 70s and early 80s, first designated as the TR-1s, but the U-2 name stuck. You just can't get rid of that right. name when the plane looks like a U-2. Um, 
but uh, the U-2 is a fabulous aircraft. It's been in service now for 65 years. Uh, and uh, like you said, there's an article two weeks ago uh, in the local uh, DC papers uh, about how the U-2's life will be extended again through the next set of budget cuts. So it continues to fly uh, and do a valuable service for our country uh, to gather intelligence and uh, information uh, around the world. So your, your dad's May 1st flight was particularly important. It wasn't just another routine U-2 flight because it provided, it was coming right in advance of what would was supposed to be a key summit meeting that was gonna happen between the United States and the Soviet Union. Yeah, that's correct. This particular mission, the May 1st mission, was to fly across the entire width of the Soviet Union from Peshawar, Pakistan, some 2,900 miles to Boda, Norway. Uh, it would take about nine hours to fly this mission. And it was the first time that this flight path was ever tried to fly across the entire width of the Soviet Union. Prior, they were flying along the border. They would cut in and then cut back out. Uh, they would uh, cut corners around the country to film stuff, but they would have not yet attempted to fly across the entire width. So on May 1st, in preparation for the May 16th summit conference, the CIA is pressuring Eisenhower, hey, Mr. President, we just need one more flight to gather information so that you are better prepared for this May 16th summit. Eisenhower is a little concerned. He doesn't want anything to jeopardize the summit with Khrushchev, de Gaulle, and the prime minister from the UK. But uh, at the same time, he wants this information to have the upper hand in negotiating. So Eisenhower says, the last flight cannot take place after May 1st. That's the window. So if you can't take it by May 1st, it's not going. On May 27th, May 30th, I'm sorry, on April 27th through April 30th, it was weather-related issues that prevented the flight from taking off. My dad's rotation comes in. He's the pilot now to do the next mission on the 30th or the, the 1st. The 30th is a bad day. The weather is horrible. It starts to clear up. May 1st, it's, it's clear weather, the flight path. They give him the authorization to go. He ends up taking off at 6.30 in the morning on May 1st and basically flies into history. Yeah, and unfortunately, the flight itself provides us with uh, some key technological intelligence um, about the Soviet surface-to-air missile capabilities that we didn't know about beforehand. Uh, we, we understood this: the Soviets were building new missiles but we didn't know the capabilities of the SA-2 until unfortunately one was used to shoot down your dad. And here up on the screen is a Soviet provided, a Russian provided photograph of the crash scene. And so from this, I want people to start to look at this and, and let me ask you this question about the cover-up, because I guess if Eisenhower had seen this photo, the cover-up they devised would not have gone the same way they assumed. Talk a little bit about the weather mission and I'm putting quotes around that that the United States tried to, to pretend this was? Well, um, the, the U-2 and this particular mission on May 1st, um, its, its, its mission was to basically fly over certain military um, uh, uh, industrial complexes of the Soviet Union, taking these pictures to find out the strengths and weaknesses of their adversary, the Soviet Union. On May 1st, one of the targets was over Sverdlovsk, which is now called the Ekaterinburg, in the central part of the former Soviet Union. 
on an April 9th flight that had taken place three, four weeks earlier, the photos that were revealed had revealed that there was an SA-2 base that was being built in or around Sverdlovsk. So one of the mission parameters for May 1st was my father to fly over Sverdlovsk to find out if this missile base, the SA-2 base, was operational. Dad found out that it was, yeah, and as a result, got shot down out of the sky. Pardon me. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so at the time, uh, during the height of the Cold War, uh, it was easier to blame the pilot than to admit the Soviets had this technology. Because the mindset in America in the 50s and early 60s, oh, it's the Soviets. They're so far behind us. They can't have that technology. They can't be better than us. It had to be the pilot's fault. So that type of a mindset added to the misinformation of the speculation that the pilot had had a flame out or defected or landed the plane intact. All of the misinformation, the fake right. news of the time that was circulating around. But uh, in fact, it was the near miss of a Soviet SA-2 missile, one of eight missiles fired at the airplane. Um, and uh, in addition to my father being shot down on May 1st, another pilot, a MiG pilot was shot down by friendly fire. Sergei Safronov was that uh, MiG pilot who lost his life on May 1st instead of my father. And I can tell you a story about that and his son and I talking and a memorial laying I did uh, later in the uh, conversation. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And one of the interesting things is, again, there was an attempted cover-up by the Eisenhower administration of for saying that this was a weather mission gone bad, that they didn't expect the aircraft, or in this case, your dad, to survive because that was the idea, right? If you're shot down at 70,000 feet, the, the plane is going to be in small little tiny pieces. The pilot would have been killed. As we can see here, even, I mean, as the, the next slide shows, this is actually a piece of the Powers U-2 uh, that we have on display inside the museum. Um, I've been to, the, and I think you have as well, to the Central Armed Forces Museum in Moscow. There's a lot of the plane left. Right. There's the whole wing sections. They don't I mean, as a museum person, it kind of sickens me. You can go up and kind of grab the wing and shake it a little bit. They don't protect it very well. But there's a whole lot of plane left over. I don't know how they, they possibly could have thought that this was going to they were going to get away with this cover story. Well, um, uh, I don't know how, where I want to start with this answer in regards to the cover story. Uh, the cover story was basically that an unarmed weather research plane may have accidentally strayed across the Soviet's border after the pilot had radioed trouble with his auction equipment. The pilots didn't know what the cover story was. From what the pilots understood, there would be no cover story. They were on their own. 
But from what I have discovered is that um, uh, some folks at the State Department, when the U-2 went down, said, oh, no, no, we have to have a cover story. We have to release a cover story. And it went against what all the officials at the CIA, the State Department, the White House had originally agreed to. So the State Department issues a cover story of a weather research plane and has a U-2 in front of a NASA hangar uh, 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 dolled up as um, uh, a weather research plane. These photos are released to the press uh, and the cover story is released saying that the pilot radioed trouble with oxygen equipment. So once that cover story is in place on May 5th, two days go by, then Khrushchev on May 7th announces to the world at a press conference, ah, comrades, not only did we shoot down the plane, but we also captured the pilot, Francis Gary Powers, who's quite alive and kicking, and was confessed as spying for the CIA. Now, back in 1960, it was a very big embarrassment for Eisenhower, military war hero, very uh, respectable president. I mean, uh, just his, his image was that of a grandfather figure. Um, he was caught lying to the American public, to the world public. It was the first time that an American president had been caught lying to its, uh, their people. But now after 60 years, Nixon and Watergate, Lyndon Johnson, Vietnam, Monica and Bill, and a couple of other uh, examples from the current administration, we know that presidents can and do lie to the American public. But in 1960, it was the first time that one had been caught doing so which added to this uh, negative image of my father. It was easier to blame the pilot than to further embarrass the president of the United States. And this all contributed to the misinformation, the fake news of the time that was circulating uh, that uh, tarnished my dad's reputation. Right, we're definitely gonna talk about that. Let me, let me do two more questions before we get there. Because one of the, the questions that, that always comes up is how was your father treated when he was a prisoner of the Soviet Union? Was he tortured? physically or emotionally or mentally. Uh, and this is, a, again, a picture of you uh, inside the cell that he was in. So can you talk a little bit about your knowledge of how he was treated by the Soviets? Well, after my father was captured and turned over the KGB, he spent the first three months in solitary confinement at Lubyanka prison going through the interrogations. 16-hour days, bright spotlight, grueling questions, threats of death, no physical torture, but a lot of mental anguish. Um, one of the reasons that I think he was not uh, abused, physically abused, is that he was too high profile a prisoner. Everybody in the world knew that the Soviets had him in captivity. And the Soviets wanted to show the world how humane they were, how nice they were, how they treated the uh, spies they caught in their country. And this was intentionally used as a further way to embarrass the United States. Um, they uh, treated my father well, all things considered. But you have to remember, it's the Soviet Union, it's a Soviet prison, there's no central AC, there's no three meals a day, it's very hot and blistery in the summer, very cold and chilly in the winter. It is not like an American prison system where you have color TVs and other amenities. This was basic necessities of that. During uh, my father's incarceration, he lost about 30 pounds, he had a very poor diet. Um, he was able to write letters back and forth to his family, which was one of the privileges that he really, really safeguarded. That was his lifeline to his family and his loved ones. But again, 
the Soviets allowed my dad to write letters home to his family. The US FBI did not allow Rudolf Abel to write letters home to his family. So again, a way to embarrass the United States. And it was uh, the, from the trial to the exchange, it was always a way for the Soviets, they were maneuvering to come out with a better image. So in a second, I'm, I'm move on to talk about some of the controversies and have you clear up a lot of them. But I, there's a moment I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall. And that's when you actually had a chance to have a conversation with Nikita Khrushchev's son, Sergei Khrushchev, kind of the son to son conversation. So how, how did that go? That had to have been a really interesting conversation between the two of you. Well, uh, as a matter of fact, I was emailing with Sergei Khrushchev this morning. I have helped to introduce a student who's doing a report for her high school project. And so she's doing it on the U2 incident, the Cold War, and some other aspects of the summit conference. So I was able to put a, her in touch with him for this uh, interview. But Sergei and I first met in 1995 or 1996 in Boda, Norway. It was a conference at the Norwegian Aviation Museum. Uh, Boda, Norway is the air base where my father would have landed on May 1st had his mission been successful. So I was fortunate enough to be able to find a sponsor to go over to this uh, um, conference. It was the first Cold War conference that I'm, I'm aware of, and I was invited to attend and be a participant and a panelist. So while I'm there, I end up bringing over a small uh, uh, portable exhibit on the U-2 incident comprised of family artifacts and items that I've set up for display. I gave a talk to the international audience that was there, and I was able to meet with and interact with Sergei Khrushchev. So in 1995-96, I'm about 30 years old, and he's probably about 55 or 60 years old, about the same as his dad was. So we looked kind of similar to how our parents looked, our dads looked back in the day. Uh, when we first met each other, we kind of eyed each other up and down. We weren't quite sure how or what this person was about or, or, or the stuff we've heard about each other. But after a, a few dinners and a few days together and talking shop, uh, it turns out that we had a lot in common. I was trying to do research on my father to find out the truth of what took place. Uh, he was doing research on his father and trying to publish uh, certain books and memoirs to keep his father's legacy alive. And we were all coming, both coming at it from a historical viewpoint. Yes, we are the sons of these individuals, but we are looking at it uh, from a historic perspective. Right. There was no your daddy shut down my daddy kind of thing. That was no, there, there, <laughs> no, there was no animosity. Uh, right. There was no ill feelings. It was just a, a, basically a historian's curiosity. Right. So let's tackle some of the controversies because I think some of these still persist, even mm -hmm. though there's overwhelming evidence against them, and maybe people haven't seen that evidence. So let's start with the the first one, and this is that. Your dad was flying too low, and that's what allowed him to get shot down. And I think that's where you want to bring back in this the Soviet MiG pilot, because that's key to this, because the NSA thought this because they did pick up a flight, a, a aircraft flying very low, and it turns out that it wasn't the U-2. Um, and let me, let, me, let me have you finish the story off with the conversations with the man you already mentioned, Kelly Johnson. Um, and, and kind of understanding how this actually took place. Yeah, um, well, uh, uh, like I was saying earlier, the U-2 was shot down at his assignment, my dad signed altitude of 70,500 feet on May 1st by the near miss of a Soviet SA-2 missile. 
It was one of eight missiles that were fired at the plane. Now, in addition to the missiles that were being fired, MiGs were being scrambled. They were trying to zoom up and intercept and shoot down the U-2. In addition, a Soviet Su-9, uh, a new type of aircraft that was designed to fly up to 70,000 feet or so, had also been scrambled to try to zoom up and intercept ram my father. Um, the Su-9 pilot basically overshot the target, was running low on fuel, and then had to circle back around, descending in a circular uh, flight path to get to the air base to refuel. That is the flight path. That is the chatter that the NSA listening people picked up, that the plane was descending. Well, yes, there was a plane descending, the Su-9. By that time, the U-2 was already spinning out of the sky, tumbling out of the sky, because it would have been hit by the nearness of the missile. So it's one of the reasons why some people thought and continue to this day to think that my father had descended because, of course, the NSA had picked up the plane was descending. It just happened to be the wrong plane. Well, and, and, and when he finally returns to the United States and he's able to sit down with arguably the greatest aerospace engineer in history and explain what actually happened, he convinced the guy you needed to convince. And then that case is Kelly Johnson. So I put, put, put the photo up, up now of them talking to each other. If Kelly's convinced, I don't know how everybody else wasn't at that point. Uh, well, um, yeah, my dad, when he was brought home, he was extensively debriefed for three weeks at a CIA safe house in Maryland. And then he moved over to somewhere else, I think in Pennsylvania, because that house was compromised. But uh, Kelly Johnson was part of the debriefing team. Uh, General Harry Cords was part of the debriefing team, as well as other CIA and State Department officials going through asking these questions. When my father went through the debriefing, at first, they kept circling back around to Frank. What altitude were you when you were shot down? Well, I was at 70,500 feet. I was vectoring into my next target. All of a sudden, a bright orange flash, a shockwave hits the plane, down I go. Now, Frank, are you sure you were at 70,500 feet? Are you sure you didn't have a flame out or descend prior to being hit by a missile? Nope, I was at my assigned altitude. I did this, I did that, and then down I went. So his story was consistent from the day he got home until he passed away. And today's research shows that everything he said then was right. Now, with the shoot down, and where I'm going to circle back around to this, is... Um, uh, 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 the, oh, so my dad is debriefed by the CIA for three weeks. After being debriefed, the CIA clears him of any wrongdoing. They showed him, basically, they realized he did everything he was supposed to do. He followed orders to the T. Then three weeks later, March 6th of 62, my dad is exonerated by the U.S. Senate. Uh, Prescott Bush, uh, um, uh, uh, I've forgotten the other few senators that were on board now. Um, Dick Russell, as well as uh, Al Gore's uh, father, Senator Gore. Uh, those three senators, others of the era, are on this committee. They investigate the U-2 incident. They question my father back and forth for a day-long session. At the end of the day, the U.S. Senate clears my father of any wrongdoing. They exonerate him. They show him to be a fine young man, performing well under dangerous circumstances. But again, it's the height of the Cold War. The misinformation is out there, the fake news of the time. And people are more inclined to believe the fake news, which is prevalent, as opposed to a one-hour session where he's cleared. 
So again, it's the misinformation of the time that contributed to my father's uh, uh, reputation being tarnished. But over 50 years now, the truth is out there. The record has been set straight. The government has awarded, the US government has posthumously awarded my dad with uh, the medals, including the Distinguished Flying Cross, which is pictured on the screen, uh, the Silver Star, and the POW medal. One thing I think is interesting from an intelligence perspective is one of the fake news stories of the time was that your dad gave them information that they didn't have otherwise, that he talked. And one of the great things, fantastic parts of this is that, yeah, he told them some stuff, but in a very different way than people would suggest. And, and when he held out for a while, it was brilliant because he claimed that he was just the pilot, that the mechanics didn't let them anywhere near the plane. He didn't understand how it worked. He just knew how to fly it. But as we talked about, he was one of the most veteran pilots of the program. He certainly understand how it worked, but he was able to hold out against the KGB interrogation at the time, which is extraordinary. Well, um, dad did spend three months, uh, two and a half months in solitary confinement going through the interrogations. Um, at first, the very first week, he was lying to his captors outright, trying to mislead them any way he could, keeping back as much information as possible. But then on May 7th, after the cat's out of the bag, Eisenhower has been caught lying, dad's alive in a KGB prison, the U-2 incident is now front page headlines, and there's a big international incident going on. The Soviet interrogator in charge of the interrogations on May 7th, a copy of the New York Times, rushes into the cell room, shoves the newspaper in dad's face, yells at him, you've lied to us. You told us you were trained in Arizona. Well, the New York Times says you were trained in Nevada at Area 51. You might as well tell us everything. We'll get it out of your American press anyways. So all of a sudden, dad is stuck between a rock and a hard place. And so he takes on the following tactic to get through these interrogations. He tells the full truth when he knows they can verify the information in the press. That gives him credibility. He lies to him outright when he knows there's no way they can find out the answer. Then he gives a part truth, a part lie, dances around the subject when he knows that they know something about the question they're asking, but not enough to contradict his answer, much of the altitude he was flying. Dad always maintained he was at 70,500 feet. I, I'm sorry, I completely said that wrong. My dad always maintained during the interrogations that he was the maximum altitude of 68,000 feet, close enough to be believable, yet far enough away to keep other pilots out of harm's way should the missions continue. It was also his effort to get a message back home to his employer, the CIA. Hey guys, I'm not telling the full truth. So this is the, the tact that my father took during his interrogations. He appeared to cooperate. He wanted to get them to believe he was being honest and truthful. But all the while, he's trying to prevent as much information as possible from being revealed. And as part of his debriefing, I mean, that's been understood by CIA. That's why they cleared him of wrongdoing, because they knew exactly what he did and didn't tell them during that time. Correct. Uh, that, but yes, but they didn't know that until he was brought home and debriefed. Right. Up until that point, there was damage assessment teams. Did he defect? Did he, was he a traitor? Did he land the plane? They checked his bank accounts out. They checked his tax returns out. They checked everything to see if there was unaccounted uh, for money that came into his possession. So, you know, he was raked over the coals while he's in prison, unable to defend himself or his character 
it's back home, debriefed by CIA, cleared by U.S. Senate, cleared by CIA, but again, the court of public opinion had not yet cleared them because of the fake news of the time. So your father's story has been dramatized now twice, uh, most famously uh, in Bridge of Spies, but there was also a relatively well-known, if you're old enough, uh, <laughs> movie with Lee Majors. I mean, you get the $6 million man playing your dad. That's kind of cool uh, in the 70s. But this has to be anxiety producing for you because so much has been said incorrectly about him. Let's talk about Bridges Spies. How, how did you feel comfortable they'd get it right? I mean, oh. if you spent your entire life debunking nonsense, they're making a movie with Tom Hanks. That's with Steven, you know, this is going to be a major movie. It had to have been some sleepless nights involved in this. Yeah. Well, before I talk about Bridges Spies, I'd like to start with the Lee Majors one. That one came out when I, in 1976, my father's alive, he's a technical consultant on the film. I am 12 years old. Lee Majors, the $6 million man, is portraying my father. I'm thinking, wow, the $6 million man, this is awesome. I didn't care that he was portraying my dad. <laughs> so um, it was a very unique to be on the set for the $6 million man, certain scenes, uh, the exchange scene at the bridge that was filmed in Long Beach, California, Three in the morning, Lee Majors on one side, the Rudolph Abel guy in the Lee Majors movie is on the other. They do the exchange scene. I remember that as a kid. Now, jump forward. I'm not thinking dad's going to have a movie made about him again. I mean, he had one already, 1976, Lee Majors. That was a made-for-TV film. To my surprise, in 2014, I start to hear rumors that Spielberg, of all people, along with Tom Hanks, is going to do a movie that will portray my father. And my first thought was, oh, they're not going to do this. Why would Spielberg do this? He has no reason to do this. Come to find out, his dad was in Moscow in 1960. Spielberg's father saw the U-2 wreckage, was berated in front of the Soviet citizens about being American and Western and how embarrassing it is for them to be here uh, with the U-2 to see this wreckage. So Spielberg's father was in line to see the U-2 wreckage, was taken out of line, berated, and then allowed to see the wreckage and go on about his business. His father was a GE employee on an exchange program with engineers uh, at that time period, which is why he was over in the Moscow and the Soviet Union. So this is the reason I found out that Spielberg had an interest in this topic. He knew about Gary Powers. He knew about the U2 incident because his father told him about it growing up. But Spielberg didn't know anything about Rudolph Abel or the fact that Powers was exchanged for this Soviet spy. So when he started reading the script, realizing there was a family connection and an interest, he decides to do this movie, Bridge of Spies. So when I first find out, uh, I, I'm thinking he's not going to do it. All of a sudden, it ends up, it's going to happen. My first thought, how do you get in touch with Steven Spielberg? You just can't pick up the phone. Very busy man. I try to reach him through contacts in Hollywood. Cannot get an introduction. I resort to Google. I look up his name, his movies, find people he worked with, type in their names, find some of their email addresses. I send out an unsolicited email to about five or six of his contemporaries, basically saying, hello, my name's Gary Powers. I'm looking to find out more about this movie that will portray my father. I'd like to make sure that uh, Mr. Spielberg understands the Powers family's concerns. 
if he bases the portrayal of my father on the misinformation of the time, they'll be painting him in a negative light. If they base it off the declassified information that's come to surface the last 50 plus years, they'll be painting him as a hero to our country. So for obvious reasons, very important to reach out, try to establish contact. As a result of that email, I get a phone call from the producer on the film, Mark Platt. Mark Platt is better known for his production of Wicked on Broadway. So very well regarded in the industry, very well respected. Mark and I talked for an hour in July of 2014. At the end of the conversation, he goes, hey, Mr. Powers, thank you so much for reaching out to me. Um, I'm very impressed with what you've told me and the research you've done. How would you like to be a technical consultant on the film? Well, yes, that would be awesome. <laughs> thank you very much. Um, I get the contract. I'm reading through it. I'm to help answer questions. I'm to provide audio tapes of my father speaking so they can listen firsthand to what he'd gone through. I'm to be on set as occasion to assist where needed. And at the very end of this contract in very small print, they don't have to listen to me. Hmm. And if I don't like the end result, I can't sue. Ugh. So tie my hands, use the family's name, and then do whatever they want to do. So I thought long and hard, but at the end of the day, I thought it was better to be part of the film and try to steer them in the right direction. Otherwise, had I walked away, I'd had no say whatsoever. So I did sign the dotted line. I was a, 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 a credited as a technical consultant on the film. I was in New York City for one of the scenes when they were filming the Supreme Court scene in New York City. Hmm, it's Hollywood. They can make anywhere look like anywhere else. Um, I was also at Beale Air Force Base in California, the home of the U2 program. And there I was, um, uh, uh, they were filming the scenes for the U2 takeoff scene, the U2 flight sequence scenes, and the uh, pilot mission briefing scenes. So during this time, they said, hey, Mr. Powers, put on this 1950 vintage suit. You'll walk the pilot out for his May 1st mission. So by the time everything was said and done, I have escorted my father out for his famous flight. Very surreal, but yes. wow, what an experience. That's fantastic. And so the movie has done a lot to kind of bring light to uh, your father's story. You have done a ton in the last several decades. And this includes uh, helping us as a museum um, to help ex to explain this story to the public. Um, here you are um, on the left of this picture, left, right, yeah, I can't tell, I'm backwards in many cases, uh, with the, the suitcase, the famous suitcase. And this is the suitcase that your father carried all of his stuff across the bridge in Bridge of Spies when he's traded for Rudolf Abel. And because of your generosity, all of this, you've loaned this to the museum. And when we reopen, people can come see this actually at the museum firsthand, including several other things that he had in prison with him. Well, the items that uh, you see on your screen now, the big chess book, um, is a book that my father was sent in prison by his first wife. Uh, he was learning to play chess. Uh, his cellmate, Zergard Krimish, a Latvian, was a grand master at chess and was teaching my father to play chess in the Soviet prison cell in Vladimir. This is the prison where he was assigned after the trial, where he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. So my father, uh, while he's incarcerated with Zagard, is learning to play chess, becomes, um, uh, 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 not proficient, that's the wrong word, but becomes 
able to understand the pieces, how they move, some simple strategy. He can play games of chess. He understands how to play the game. Now, once he has that understanding, Sir Guard, his cellmate, does the following. He sets up the chessboard. He turns around. He blindfolds himself. And he still beats my dad at chess. He is a brilliant guy. So smart, my father's now thinking he remembers everything I say. He is a plant. What's he doing when I'm sleeping? What's he doing when we're separated and I'm out of the cell? So even though my father appreciated the friendship and the camaraderie that they shared while in prison, he was also a little concerned as to who this guy really was. But regardless, they did get along and they helped each other endure the hardship. So I just want to tell that story because the chess book is right there. And, and my father ends up teaching me to play chess. So there's that little legacy. I was going to say, um, did, he come, the, did he come back and just kick the living crap out of everybody at chess since he learned from a, a Russian or a Latvian chess master? I mean, that would be like. He, he was a good player, but he was not a master. <laughs> um, the uh, photo of me in front of the, the uh, suitcase uh, the distinguished flying cross, the alarm clock, a soap dish and bar of soap, and the chess book. These were all items that my father had with him while in Soviet custody. The smaller items in front of the luggage uh, were in prison with him. Oh, let me rephrase that. That's not correct because the distinguished flying cross was presented uh, after the fact. But the alarm clock, the soap dish and soap, and the book were items in his prison cell. The suitcase was what the Soviets furnished him when he was being exchanged to take his clothing and other small belongings, letters, keepsakes, back home with him uh, upon the exchange. So these are the items that are loaned to the spy museum. Uh, they're in one of the exhibits uh, there, I think on the second floor, maybe the third floor, uh, where the beginning of the exhibit start and it's on overhead reconnaissance uh, from some spy satellites, the U-2 and the SR-71 and Kelly Johnson all has a nice wall exhibit there where these artifacts are displayed. So I want to bring Amanda Olke back in uh, so she can uh, help us with some questions because there are certainly some questions from out people out there uh, listening in. Uh, Amanda, hello. Hi, yeah, lots of, lots of questions and lots of well wishes and People sending you also condolences, Gary. Very, very sweet and honoring your father. So I just wanted to share that with you. Um, uh, spinning sort of off of the Bridge of Spies conversation, people wonder about the equitability of trading uh, Abel for powers, you know, and did that make sense? Was that equal? Was that not? Yeah. Um, uh, some people in the 60s when my father was being exchanged for Rudolf Abel compared uh, the exchange to trading Mickey Mantle for a rookie. And that's the type of comparisons that was given at the time. They thought the US was getting a poor deal. They thought that the Soviets were getting a highly acclaimed master spy in exchange for a pilot. They didn't understand the significance of what it would be for both governments to get their agents back. Both sides wanted to get their agents back to be debriefed. How did you get caught? What did you tell them? What did they tell you? What type of questions were asked? So by getting these agents back, the respective governments were able to learn more about their tactics, uh, their examinations, their interrogation tactics. How did they go through this stuff? So while it is true that uh, Rudolf Abel was a quote unquote master spy, 
Um, and dad was quote unquote, a pilot. <laughs> the exchange actually worked well for both sides. They get these two very important individuals, these agents back that can be debriefed to give them more information on how uh, operations uh, go on the other side. In addition, my father was exchanged along with Pryor, Frederick Pryor. He was a student who was caught in East Germany. He was not a spy. He was a graduate student who happened to uh, have the hots for a young Fraulein trying to get out over the, uh, over the Berlin Wall when it's being erected. He gets caught. He gets thrown in the uh, East German jail uh, and they try to uh, trump up charges on him to get uh, resources from the states in in for the exchange. But as a result of uh, James Donovan, Rudolf Abel's attorney during the trial ends up brokering the exchange between Rudolf Abel, my father, and Pryor. And so on February 10th of 62, a cold, dark, foggy morning, these two individuals, my dad and Rudolf Abel, are exchanged at the Glendiger Bridge. At the same time, Pryor is being let go at the Checkpoint Charlie. Um, people wonder about the collaboration between the CIA and the U.S. Air Force. They think that seems odd. Um, I'm not sure why people would think it's odd. It's been going on since the Air Force was formed. Um, the CIA works with government contractors as well as uh, Air Force and military units uh, on a daily basis for certain operations. Uh, it's done in conjunction with national security to safeguard Americans at home uh, and uh, collecting intelligence from abroad. So they work with various groups around the world, uh, including private companies on occasion, um, or even shell companies to extract information and or individuals as necessary uh, for certain missions. And part of it, sorry, part of it is funding, uh, part of who's gonna actually be in charge of this very expensive program. But also part of it is, if you're flying a U.S. Air Force aircraft over the Soviet Union, that could be construed as an act of war versus a CIA, which is because it is a civilian agency, even though it's an intelligence agency, it's not a military aircraft invading Soviet airspace. So they're very careful about that. I mean, that's still true to this day. Very careful about whether it's actually officially U.S. military forces invading, quote unquote, someone else's airspace. Yeah. And Vince, you bring up a very good point there. Eisenhower intentionally made sure it was a civilian operation headed by the CIA so that it would not be an act of war if headed by the military under LeMay. Um, where do I want to bring with that? But yes, that is true for the 1950s and 60s when it was still classified. When it was the height of the Cold War, it was a civilian operation. Fast forward 60 years. Now, after the Cold War has ended, there's no more Soviet Union. Back in 1998, there was a declassification conference hosted by the CIA and the Air Force. And the most important part of that declassification was that it was a joint military operation. The CIA and the Air Force combined to do these operations. Yeah. For all intent and purposes, it was a military operation. That was declassified in 1998. And once that word military was declassified, that opened up the door for dad to be honored by our government because he was no longer a civilian employee, he had been a military employee. Right. Um, we have some really, this question actually kind of made my blood run uh, cold. Did your father ever describe what it was like when he was falling? 
Yes, when my father was tumbling out of the sky. Yeah. Basically, um, uh, the missile explodes. It pushes the plane forward. The shock wave hits the plane. The tail section is damaged. Nose pitch forward. Wings snap off. Inverted spin tumbling out of the sky. Bells are going off. Gauges are unwinding. It's, you know, it's panic. It's crazy. He's falling out of the sky, just been shot down. He's trying to get his um, legs into the proper position to use the ejection seat. He can't get in the proper position. If he ejects, he will sever his legs off. So he does the following. He opens up the canopy, which floats off into space. He undoes his harness. He's immediately sucked up halfway out of the airplane. He is still connected by his air hose. So he's half in the plane, half in the cockpit, half out of the cockpit, spinning down towards the ground, can no longer reach the destruct button on the dashboard of the cockpit of the airplane. He's realizing he's getting closer to the ground. He breaks free of the air hose, falls free of the aircraft. His parachute opens automatically at 15,000 feet. He parachutes down to the ground. So it was hair raising. And it was um, uh, very lucky that he lived through this shoot down. Had it been a direct hit, he and the plane would be in little pieces. But since it was the near miss behind and to the right of the tail section, he was able to survive and eventually bail out. And there's a wonderful crossover uh, yeah. with American spy stories in this case, is the SA-2 was armed with what's called a proximity fuse. And this is what allowed the, air, the, the missile itself to explode in the vicinity of the aircraft, essentially use radar to determine how close it was to the aircraft that it exploded and shrapnel and shock and everything went into the aircraft. Well, the Soviets did not develop their own proximity fuse. It actually was stolen American technology during yeah. World War II, and it was stolen by none other than Julius Rosenberg, who passed the, the proximity fuse technology over to the Soviets. So it was the Rosenbergs that led to your father's shoot down in the end, not so much the atomic bomb, but the proximity fuse that ends up shooting down the U-2 in May of 1960. I've also heard that the Rosenbergs were responsible on passing along some radar technology right. that the Soviets to improve their weapon system, their radar system. Yep. But before I forget, I want to circle back around to what I mentioned earlier about this MiG pilot who was shot down on May 1st as well, Sergei Safronov. His son approached me seven, eight years ago. And when he did, he wanted to do a, a, a talk at the museum between me and him and an interpreter. So I agreed and we set up and, and actually have this filmed for our archival purposes. So he and I had a lovely conversation through an interpreter for a couple of hours. And the most important thing he said to me, he relayed a message from his mother that she did not blame my father for her husband's death, that she understood my father was following orders, her husband was following orders, and it wasn't dad's fault that her husband was killed by friendly fire. So I took that to heart. I thought it was very nice and, and to know that there was no animosity between our two families. When I go to the Soviet Union, uh, I was rephrase, sorry. When I go to Russia for the fourth time, I've been there four times, the first time as the Soviet Union in 1990 and three subsequent trips, the last one being December of 2017. I'm able to go to Sverdlovsk for the first time. I'm able to see the U-2 impact craters on the ground. I'm able to see the farm area where my father parachuted and landed, which is now a housing development. 
and I was able to see uh, and meet with some people who were young kids at the time who told me the memories they had of seeing this happen and seeing this parachute come down to the ground. In addition, I was able to uh, visit the SA-2 base, one of the bases that had fired the missiles. So it was a really interesting uh, trip to go and see these, these locations finally after so many years of research. As part of this trip, we went by a city, uh, went by Sverdlovsk, and in Sverdlovsk, there's a memorial to this MiG pilot, Sergei Safranov. It is a, a marble granite statue etched with his image and the plane, the tail section of the MiG that was shot down. So it's a very striking memorial, the monument that's there in this city. I wanted to show my respects to the family whose mother did not blame my dad. So I wanted to show that it was reciprocal. So I was arranged for um, stop at a flower store. I picked up some roses. I'm in my coat and tie. There's cameras all around. I'm getting ready to lay these flowers down as a sign of respect for this MiG pilot who lost his life on May 1st. My host goes, Mr. Powers, don't smile. What do you mean don't smile? There are cameras everywhere. I was taught to smile when you're in front of cameras. If you smile when you're presenting these flowers at this memorial, it will be an insult to the Russian people. Oh, thank you so much for letting me know. I will not smile. Stone face. So I'm about to go up. He goes, oh, Mr. Powers, don't turn your back on the memorial. What do you mean? How am I supposed to walk away? You walk up, you present the flowers, you take some moments to reflect, you back away five or six steps, and then you turn around. Oh, thank you so much, I appreciate that. The last thing I wanted to do was to create another international incident. <laughs> and so I was able to pay my respects uh, to uh, the MiG pilot and his family uh, and to let them know that there's no animosity from our side either. We are, we are slightly over, but I think you guys are comfortable with a few more questions. Sure. Um, I've got um, about another 10 minutes and then I've got to start going. Okay, well, this one, this is pretty cool. Um, someone writes in that his father was in the same CIA detachment in Turkey from 1958 to 60, and he wonders if the training um, in isolation and interrogation um, provided by the CIA helped your father withstand the interrogation that he uh, underwent by the Soviets? Uh, very interesting question, um, but no, <laughs> it did not help. Uh, let me explain why. The Air Force pilots that were recruited had already gone through SEERS training, search, escape, and evasion training while they were in the Air Force. Um, the CIA did not really train them or prepare them on what to do if captured. They basically said, and this is my father in his book said this, that at one of the briefings, my dad asks his superior a question, what happens if one of us goes down? And the gentleman, the CIA briefer basically said, you might as well tell them everything, we'll get it out of your American, uh, 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 hold on, uh, they'll get it out of you anyways. So this is my father's book that Vince is holding up, uh, Operation Overflight. And so let me rephrase that to make sure I said it correctly. He, my dad asked the briefer, what should we do if we go down? Uh, the briefer says, you might as well tell them everything. They'll get it out of you anyways, expecting them to be tortured. And um, this is why they presented the pilots with the option of taking a poison-tipped needle with them on these missions. It was an optional device to take, optional device to use at the pilot's discretion in the event of torture. 
But because dad didn't use this device, speculation occurred when he returned home, oh, he disobeyed orders. He didn't kill himself. Well, there were never any such orders. This orders were to maintain a cooperative attitude toward his captors. The pilots are perfectly free to discuss uh, 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 their missions of photographing their territory, but they should not talk about specifications of the aircraft itself and the equipment on board. So dad did everything he was supposed to do. He was never tortured. He didn't uh, 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 decide, he decided not to use this device. And I'm glad that he didn't use it. Otherwise I wouldn't be here. Yes. And again, this is the book, Operation Overflight. Um, it, you can still find it all sorts of places uh, that, you know, that gives you know a lot of this insight to so specific about um, what Gary was talking about, you know, these nuts and bolts of, not only flying the op operation, but also his time uh, in captivity. And those books are available, my dad's book uh, and uh, my books at the Spy Museum gift store and also online at garypowers.com. Well, that that rather seems like a good place yes. to wrap this up. Um, there were tons of questions. Um, Gary, we'll do our best to, to share um, a list of those in case there's anybody you want to respond to individually later. We have their emails. Uh, thanks, everybody, for writing in. And there's so many heartfelt comments directed uh, towards you. And there's lots of thanks for this incredibly interesting um, presentation and discussion. Thanks for being here, Gary. You're amazing. Thanks, Gary. Thanks for awesome. Everyone, take care and stay well. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.